Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. Salua Rifei says, Hey Kerwin, how do you start a business while engaged in studies? Great question. Salua, basically you just take the time that you've got outside of the studies and you apply that time to growing your business, which means there's got to be some sacrifice, you know? It means there's going to be a couple late nights, it means there's probably going to be a few less, uh, you know, drinking sessions with uh, your college mates and a few less parties, but uh, you know, that's a sacrifice. And um, you know, I, I guess the cool thing is where you are in your life right now, I'm assuming because you're studying young, uh, I don't want to stereotype uh, anyone who's in, in uh, university or college, but the reality is this is the time for you to take risks. You know, you take risks while you're young because you've got plenty of time to recover. But uh, my advice is just, yeah, grind, grind in, the, in the hours after you study. And I think it's really also important to be focusing on something that you really enjoy. You know, I think oftentimes when people try and launch a business part-time, when it's in conflict with something else that's taking up a lot of their focus, you know, if you don't do something that you're genuinely passionate about, you know, you're going to struggle for the motivation that's required to, you know, stay up late, get up early and, you know, perhaps make those sacrifices. Because if you're doing something that you don't really enjoy and you have to choose between, you know, beer pong and, and beer bongs and, uh, and doing the business, you're obviously, you know, you're probably going to go where your values are, are most influential and, and, and most drawn to. So, uh, yeah, make sure you love it. Beer bongs. I haven't heard that for so long. <laughs> Victor Trio asks, Hey Corwin, how do you come up with your content? We essentially have two methods. Matthias and I work very closely together uh, when it comes to creating the content. But we essentially do two things. Uh, and again, you know, the language I'm going to use, I'm going to give credit to Gary V. He's obviously uh, the pioneer in the content space, especially for personal brands. But we document and we create. Now the difference between creating content and documenting content is creating content, I might do a piece of camera. Like what we're doing now, we're creating content. But documenting content is where I have Matthias follow me around into situations and scenarios that um, you know, might be interesting, might not, and just capture the action as it happens, when it happens, which is really, for me, my preference. You know, I've observed with the different types of content that we publish, you know, there's a much stronger consumption or a much stronger appetite for the content that is uh, documented because it's very real, it's very authentic versus the created content. Now, even when I'm doing a piece of camera, whether it be on productivity or health or you know, performance, you know, it, there's always a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's showman or you know, it's me basically presenting to camera. Whereas, and I'd like to think you know, I'm relatively authentic and I'm being who I am, which I, I, I try to be nothing else but. But when you're documenting, it's pure. Like it's absolutely pure personality. It's pure intent. You get to see, you know, people get to see you, you know, as you really are. And if you've got that type of personality that is attractive to others, then that's gonna be very intriguing. So for me, I have this document. I can show you this right here. It's called Ideas 365. And I created this document uh, when we first started the social experiment where, um, you know, I came up with 123 ideas. And whenever we're, you know, we wanna, or whenever I see a theme in the marketplace or whenever I see, you know, a gap to make some content, We'll grab Matthias and uh, yeah, I'll just go straight to camera. And um, you know, of those, you know, whether it be a 45 to two minute videos where I'm doing to camera, most of them around 60 seconds, 120, you know, 120 seconds. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really short, sharp and very tight. And I think that's really important to remember. And this also goes for your documented content as well, not just your creative content. It's gotta be tight. You know, we're, we're, we're living, you know, in, a, in an attention depleted society. You know, I think it was back in 1992, the average consumer received 3,000 commercial messages a day. Uh, and I saw research recently that suggests it's up to about 32,000 commercial messages a day. So the content is you, that you create is competing with, you know, a very depleted attention span. You know, the average attention span of a human being is actually three seconds now. And when you consider that, that an attention span of a goldfish is seven seconds you know it's a little bit worrying so the content has to be sharp you know it has to be concise but it's got to be interesting to your market but um, you know the word that I really like is snackable short sharp and snackable however to um, contradict myself with the recent update to the Facebook algorithms they're actually giving more 
wait to longer videos, you know, and again, that's playing into Facebook's long-term strategy. You know, they essentially want to become uh, a distributor for broadcast and they really want to start capturing people's attention spans for longer than 60 seconds on videos and three to four minutes on videos. But I like to look at what's going on, you know, on Facebook and other platforms and I like to see what the algorithms are doing, to see what um, Facebook is essentially trying to give preference to and, you know, basically feed Facebook what it wants, but also taking into account the context of the market and what the market wants at the same time. I bleached my mug, for those of you who are wondering. Louise Lacuna says, Hey Corin, what is the best process you took on to overcome nervousness and being scared? Great question. Um, we were only just talking about, you know, this morning how, you know, in the past, uh, oh, gosh, I used to suffer from severe anxiety. Uh, and that severe anxiety would, you know, manifest as nervousness. Uh, it also manifested as fear. You know, I'm a big fan of using experiences as a form of therapy to overcome, you know, specific challenges. I'm very experiential, you know, it's, I'm tactile by nature. I like to do things and get in rather than just sit there and listen or read when it comes to, you know, assimilating and, and integrating information and, and, and knowledge. And I think knowledge and experience, uh, there's a disconnect and there's got to be that application to really embody it. So for me, I actually use skydiving as a way to overcome nervousness and fear. And to give you guys, everyone at home, like a, a complete perspective, I used to suffer severe anxiety, like debilitating anxiety that prevented me from speaking to people, opening my mouth, like even putting my hand up. Um, you know, it was to the point where I literally thought there was something seriously wrong with me before I actually realized and, you know, was, was diagnosed with what it actually was. And rather than going down, you know, the, the, the suggested treatment path, which was, you know, essentially medication to, to dull it, you know, I used breathing exercises. Uh, and something that really helped me tremendously was heart math. And heart math is essentially the study of neurocardiology, the link between the heart and the brain and how these two communicate together. But more importantly, when they're in coherence, when their communication is clear, your heart actually expands. Like heart rate variability is, is essentially the, the key components that's required to connect the heart and the brain together. And heart rate variability is the measure of how, how much your heart opens and closes. And when you're nervous and you're tense and you're stressed, your heart actually doesn't fully open. And as a result, sometimes you feel you don't breathe properly. And when you've got, you know, you're short of breath, and your heart's not opening properly, it actually amplifies, or it even in some cases triggers the anxiety, the nervousness or the fear. And so I find using deep breathing exercises like 666, you know, in for six, hold for six, out for six is an incredibly fast way for me to, to, to hit the reset button and, and resolve the anxiety. Uh, and this is what's really interesting, and which relates to the conversation I was having with Matthias earlier today. You know, anxiety is one of those things. I, I don't think you can cure yourself from anxiety because, you know, I was anxiety free for a number of years, but the last two weeks, you know, I've been, um, had some stuff going on that has, has kind of triggered, you know, some mild anxiety to come up again. And, and what's interesting is it would have been very easy for me to go, oh no, I have anxiety again, or, or, or go, oh my God, where is this going? But the reality is I looked at it and went, wow, okay, I've obviously got some work to do. You know, the muscles for me, to the muscles that I had that had learnt how to deal and cope with the regulation required to ease and dissipate uh, the anxiety and the stress, obviously got a little bit weak. So I had some work to do and uh, yeah, I'm getting back into it. So for me, Deep breathing, uh, I'd certainly ex suggest exploring heart math. Neurocardiology is an incredible science. Uh, when you start to understand the connection between the heart and the brain and when you start to you know, assimilate and realize that the heart is sending more information to the brain than the brain is to the heart, you know, the heart has an enormous electromagnetic field, many times greater than the, than the brain, has its own central nervous system, it has 100,000 times the charge of any other organ in the rest of the body. It plays an incredible role in intuition and the ability to receive information from the environment. The heart has a precognitive intuitive ability to tap into information in the environment when it's actually 
in, um, in coherence with the brain. But it also, as it beats, because it's got such a high electrical charge, like 100,000 times the electrical charge of any other organ in the body, it's the only organ in the body that has a, a sufficient electrical charge to be able to imprint you know, solid amounts of information on the biophotonic energy as it's leaving the body that actually communicates with the rest of the environment. You know, there's actually a, a pithy, in, which is a saying in quantum mechanics, which is when you change the way you look at the world, the world you look at changes. And quantum science and particle physics has actually shown us that when we look at things differently with a different perspective, matter actually starts to behave in different ways. Uh, and there's a lot of theories being banded about the, of the role of, that the heart plays in that process and communicating with the environment. So uh, yeah, bigger answer than perhaps you're looking for, but I hope it was interesting. Caramel says. <laughs> Caramel. It's a question. Yeah. Is her, her name's Caramel? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Cara. Oh, it's Caramel. Jeez, your mum had a good sense of humour. Caramel says, Hey Kerwin, what are the next steps after you've discovered what you love, think, read, and talk about? So obviously she's watched the purpose video. Uh, where I talk about you know sharing how people can find their purpose, but once you've found it, it's you know it's kind of like up to you what you want to do with it. You know, some people just get pure joy from fulfilling their purpose, and they don't need any commercial payoff as a result. They are they're happy to just you know live their purpose. And others like myself, you know, who who really want to make a dent in the universe, like I um, you know I like to commercialize, and I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm this kind of weird mix. You know, my, my father was an economist. My mother was a clairvoyant and psychic, um, and so when you mix that together, you know, I've got this spiritual nature that is <laughs> very commercial. Um, and so for me, although as, as spiritual as I, I feel like I am when it comes to pursuing what I'm here to do, I'm also very interested in commercializing it to be able to do more things. Now, I, I want to create a distinction there. You know, for me, the reason I'm, I'm so curious for commercialization of my purpose is not that I, I can have an abundance of money to go and spend it on shit. Like, look at the way that I dress. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got more than enough money to buy a very expensive wardrobe and drive ridiculous cars and live in nice houses, but I, I don't. Uh, this shirt hasn't got a hole in it, so we're, do we're doing well. But for me, it's not about spending the money, it's about acquiring the money to do more, to be creating more impact. And one of the things that I've learned through my own journey is the more money that you have, the more tools that you have to create impact. You know, there's no amount of poverty that you can acquire that will help you change the world. You know, those people who change the world are the ones that have access to capital to, to do things. You know, Mother Teresa was renowned for her ability to raise capital. You know, she was an incredible human being when it came to actually commercializing, you know, the things that she was really passionate about, and not to make money for her, but to actually make money for the causes so that she could do more with the purpose that she had. So, uh, you know, how you commercialize that, that's a bigger question, but it's one that um, it starts by asking the question, you know, how do I make money doing what I love? Am I talking very fast today? Or is that just normal? Rachel Michalski says, hey Corwin, how do I support my 13 year old starting her own business without feeling like I'm taking over? Just encourage her to explore. I believe that our job as parents is to be a guide, um, is to be, you know, I think teacher is probably a little bit too um, authoritative based. I think as a guide, it's our, it's our responsibility to teach them things. It's not that we don't teach them things, but as a guide, we show them and, um, you know, we, we help them learn how to make better decisions based on where they are. And as a 13 year old, I know personally that's when I started, uh, I think it was 13 or 14, is. Um, when I started my first business, I did it. I didn't have a parent telling me to do it. I just did it because I wanted to make money to go to the Townsville show. Uh, and me and my best mate, Chris, you know, we got together and, uh, you know, we got entrepreneurial and sold shit and chocolates. So, um, you know, we did some cool stuff, but I would just encourage her to do something that she loves. And if she's interested 
in making money, I would certainly encourage her to do it in a way that is aligned with something that she loves. Is she into art? Okay, do some drawings. You know, go around and try and sell it to the neighbours. You know, is she interested in cooking? You know, cook some stuff and you know maybe sell it to to, to the neighbours and the friends. You know, it was interesting. I remember uh, this is going back a few years ago, about seven years ago now. I had my neighbour from downstairs. Uh, her daughters were going door to door in our street, um, selling like raffle tickets uh, for the school fete. And I bought like uh, $200 worth of raffle tickets and the girls like, were like, oh my God. And they went running downstairs and they told their mum and her mum come marching up the stairs with the $200 in hand and she went to give it back. And I was like, well, what's that all about? She goes, that's too much. You can't do that. And I was like, well, why can't I do that? She goes, oh, it's just too much. It's just too much. I was like, no, I said, it's not too much. I said, I actually want to use this as an opportunity to create um, you know, a reference for what is possible when people get out of their comfort zones and, and, and you know, learn the process of selling. Because these girls came over and they sold me. And I was so impressed, I gave them $200 worth of raffle tickets. I bought $200 worth of raffle tickets. And I wanted to use that as an opportunity to teach them and to guide them that you know, when you do that, when you're able to get out of your comfort zone, when you're able to talk to people like that, you know, there, there can be some great payoffs. So just be a guide, just be gentle, but certainly don't force her to do it because otherwise, you know what happens when you try and force a 13-year-old to do the things that they want to do? They'll run 100 miles in the opposite direction. Good luck. Yeah, you got a 13-year-old, good luck. <laughs> Karina de Rischk says, Hey Kerwin, what preparations do you suggest for someone who wants to start a business? I'm going to assume based on the context of the question that you haven't started yet. And I'll just say this, imagine you are thinking about running a marathon. You know, when do you think is the best time to start training? You know, I, I think the worst thing you could do is wait till the gun goes off, although that's what most people end up doing. And hell, it's better to start training once the gun goes off than not at all. But my advice would be train in advance. So get in as much information and education as you, as you possibly can. You know, go and seek, you know, mentors and people who have experience in business that can actually share with you, you know, some of the, the, the ways some of the mistakes that they've made, but also some of the ways and things that they've used to shortcut the process. You know, the typical mistakes that people make as soon as they start making, you know, first of all, they, they try to focus on making money. And if you're focusing on making money, you know, it, it's gonna screw you up. You, know, you wanna be focusing on making, doing something that you love, and the money should be a consequence of that. But um, you also want to be focusing on taking the money that you make and then reinvesting it, especially for the first three to five years, into growth. And that's where I see you know, an, an enormous level of failure is created by people who take the money, especially in the startup phase, and as soon as they start making money, they start spending it straight away. And as a result, what do they have to do? They have to go out and start making more because they're spending what's in the bank. So for the first three to five years, you should only ever take money out of the business that is essentially enabling you to live and survive. So cost of living. And if you want to go on a holiday, go camping. You know, if you want to do something cool, do it at home. You know, there are so many amazing things that you can do when you get creative that don't really require a lot of money. And for the first three to five years, that's really important. And I know for me personally, that, that period was really important because I, I, if I'd made a lot of money straight away, actually, when I made money, and this is really interesting, when I first made a lot of money straight away, and I wasn't prepared for it, oh my God, I was such a douchebag. You know, I'd spend the money on clothes, on cars, and I was just an idiot. And I had to lose money a couple of times before I really started to appreciate the importance of, you know, nurturing money and caring for money and putting it in a safe place and, you know, surrounding it with other, you know, other forms of money just like it to, and encouraging it to grow. Because one of the things that I have seen, and I've seen this also, you know, in other companies, Apple's a great example. So Apple has over $200 billion in cash reserves. And, you know, for the longest period, I'm not sure if they still are today, they were the most valuable company on the planet. And I actually think that that is an incredible example of when you have wealth and you take care of wealth, it attracts more. 
But I see this time and again where people start to build wealth and they start to have money and they literally spend it on stuff and they're, they're left with no cash reserves. And when there's no cash reserves, it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't necessarily have the same level of attraction. So I know for me, like I've, I've been focusing very heavily for the last, you know, especially for the last six years on just building you know, strong cash reserves. And I find the more money cash that I have in the bank, the more that comes in and the more that comes in and the more that comes in. But here's the rub. It's not all about just squirreling money away and you know, trying to protect it and not let anyone near it. It's about taking care of that money that's in your care and then deploying and then using and investing that money into areas that actually demonstrate a care for the business and demonstrate an intelligence around where that money is going. So you're not just spending it on shit, you're investing it in growth, you're investing it in talent, in resources and you know, infrastructure, in some cases you know, assets and, and property that support the growth of the business versus you know, cars and planes and holidays and that kind of shit. And I'm not saying you can't once you get there, but I'm saying it, it, there's a timing for everything. And to round off, what's interesting is when you learn how to take care of money, by the time the real money starts to come in, you actually are really sensible. You know how to take care of it. You know how to look after it. And that's why I think the first three to five years, you need to learn how to become lean. You need to learn how to become frugal. Uh, because you know, making money actually becomes quite easy once you know how to make money. But then the real trick is knowing how to keep it. Last time we did uh, episode two, the question of the day was, should I or should I not shave? But crazy me, I actually shaved it. And as soon as I shaved it, I felt naked. I literally felt naked. And I went, wow, I really do have a fat face. So I'm actually, I'm bringing back the beard. Uh, for those of you who don't like it, ah, sorry. Fears. I've been talking a lot about fears the last week. I'm curious to know, what are your top three fears in life? Just give me one, one to three. What are your top one to three fears that you have that literally feel like that paralyze you and prevent you from getting after it? Don't forget, for those of you who have any questions that you want me to answer, make sure you put the hashtag HeyKerwin below and ask me any question that you want. I am, uh, I am an open book. See you next time.